You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good evening. Uh, my name is Casey. I'm one of uh, the pastors here. And uh, if you're with us for the first time, you have got here uh, for the last two weeks of the gospel of Mark. And uh, so hope you enjoy the last two weeks of the gospel of Mark, if you missed everything else. Uh, And we actually, if you have Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, grab one in front of you. And we're going to start in Mark 14 at the very, uh, well, Mark 14 is super, super long. But we're going to start in verse 53. uh, And we're actually going to cover a a whole lot of Scripture. And so uh, we had a reader lined up. And uh, she's one of our best readers. Uh, If it's some of our best readers get the really long passages, and then just kind of last minute, I said, man, it's, it's a lot. I'm just going to kind of read and go. And really what you can expect is uh, I feel a little bit like, um, like a tourist guide. Like uh, I'm going to tell you, walk this way. We're going to point out a couple things as we go. And uh, really look at this in one story as it's unfolding. Like when we were looking at how to break this down, uh, we could have broken this up into several uh, sermons. And that would have that been great. But one thing that we want to look at as we're looking at this is we want to see the whole picture of Jesus' betrayal into his uh, kangaroo uh, kangaroo court trial and all of these things happening when he's sentenced to death under darkness. If you're familiar with, with the passion of Christ at all, and passion just means suffering, if you're familiar with this story at all, like there's some warnings I want to give. Like, like I want you to see Jesus being betrayed in darkness. And like this is literally true on the account of Thursday night. In the garden under darkness, he was wrongfully arrested. And then throughout that night, he was tried, wrongfully convicted under the darkness of night. And then through supernatural means, when he died the next day, Friday, midday, a supernatural darkness descended upon the earth. And we absolutely have to look into that darkness if you want to know what you mean to the heart of God. But I don't want you to get lost in that because what I want you to also see, like there's a danger when we look into the passion Christ that we get lost in all the darkness and we would miss this beauty that Jesus chose to stand in it. He made a choice to stand in the dark of night of being betrayed. He made a choice to stand through a trial while he was wrongfully accused. He made a choice to take the cup of God's wrath as darkness descended upon the earth and it enveloped the light of heaven. He chose to stand there. And so really that's what we're, as we walk through, we're going to be looking at all these different areas where we see Jesus choosing to stand on our behalf. And ultimately, like what we see is we see that he stood there so like a 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, so that you could be called children of light. He stood there that in this world, like we might carry a supernatural light of Jesus in our heart, 1 John chapter 2, and that light might shine through our lives. Philippians 2, verse 15, that it would look like stars in the heaven in a broken generation. And he did this so that one day that we would be found in the city of God, illuminated by the light of God. God himself, Revelations 21. He chose 
to stand. And as we're doing this, I, I, want, I want you to ask this question. Like, how do we become children of light? And, and one way we could answer that is you let the light of Christ shine into the dark corners of your heart that you don't want anyone else to see. And I want you to hear this. He stood in all of those places and he was glad to do it. And he is glad every time, any time, no matter what kind of corner we might have just stepped out of, he is always glad to meet us there. He is always glad to come, whatever ask that we might have. He's not someone who stands there and is like, oh, here you are again. He is glad any time that you show up. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Uh, Father, Lord, I pray that we would have that sense that you stepping into darkness, but you were glad to do so. I pray that that sense would come from the scriptures, I mean themselves, from Hebrews chapter four, that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. And Lord, I pray that we would let you be in our place. Wherever we are, you would let, we would let you step in. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are going from chapter 14, verse 53, to chapter 15, verse 39. And I know you're thinking, man, that is a lot of verses, and I know that worries you. It actually worries me, too. So we're in the same place. But we're going to read, I'm just going to kind of point some things out, and ultimately think of it this, all the places that we see Jesus standing and him choosing to do so, like Jesus did not get caught up in something beyond his control and was just like, man, I just got to ride this thing out. We see that the prophets pointed to so many attributes of this, and we're not actually going to point at all the different things that the prophets, that the prophets foretold, but it is numerous And so Jesus didn't get caught up in something. He chose to step in. He chose to get close. And I want you to know, like if you're here tonight, Jesus chooses to step into your life and he chooses to get close to you. And so here we go. The first thing, we see Jesus, the judge of heaven, steps in to be judged by us. And so look at verse 53. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And so if you're with us last week, or if you weren't, you can just look right ahead. This is Thursday night. It's dark. Jesus was just betrayed. And immediately he takes him to the high priest and everyone's already out of bed and everyone's already there. It is a set up deal. Like there wasn't this long period of like, oh man, we got to wake up everyone to get quorum around here. It was already there under the cloud and darkness of night. It was there. And it was there illegally. You know, capital cases such as this were forbidden to happen at night. They're also forbidden to happen over events like the Passover. And the one rule that they're trying to avoid is to have it on Sabbath. Because if you've been with us through Mark at all, Sabbath laws are a big deal to the Pharisees. We can't break them. But they're breaking every other rule. There's no time for Jesus to get a defense attorney. There's no time for him to make it a defense at all. He's not even afforded those things. Jesus enters into a rigged room of accusation. He was innocent, but he entered in. 
Jesus, the judge of heaven, steps in to be judged. Verse 54, it says, And Peter had followed him at a distance. And so if you remember, Peter was the one who said, I'll never leave you, I'll never betray you, I will even die for you. And in the garden, he kind of had his chance, and he pulled out a sword, and he cut a guy's ear off. And Jesus said, put that away. That's not the kind of kingdom I'm walking into. It's not the kind of kingdom that I have. It can't be stopped with swords. And so Peter running in fear after that, he kind of musters courage up and he starts to follow from a distance. And as far as we know, he's the only one that's this close. But so he followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. And so this is like Peter is trying to muster his courage. Like he's trying to muster it up. I mean, he's the only one that we know from this account that's there. We also know that John was probably there and helped him get in, you know, from other accounts. But like Mark isn't there. So he's hearing this story. Like Mark is still off work trying to find his pants. And so he's here. Verse 55. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And so in this court, in the, in the Sahedrin court, we had to have testimonies verified by more witnesses. And so if two witnesses are saying the same thing and it starts to fall apart, it's going very, very badly. Like this is not how it was supposed to go. Like these, uh, so often, this is not how it was supposed to go. And so what we see is the high priest who's supposed to preside over this is about to jump up and take on like the attorney himself. And so look at verse 60. It says, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked him, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And he, Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And so Caiaphas, the high priest, sees that it wasn't going how he planned it. So he takes matters into his own hands. And as an impartial judge, he starts to question Jesus. And this is like, if this was a courtroom drama, like this is the moment that gets really excited. The, the defendant is on the stand and they're asking a very specific question. Are you the Christ? Are you saying that you came to deliver us from all kinds of evil, to set up a new kingdom, say yes or no? And it's like this moment he's saying, I want the truth. And he's like, you can't handle the truth. And it's gonna be true. They can't handle the truth. Verse 62 and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So the high priest stands up and he says, are you the Christ? But Jesus doesn't just say yes. He says so much more than just yes. 
Like, like look at what he says really specifically. Back at verse 62, he says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And so there's two references that everyone in that room would have, would have understood. First was Daniel 7, where he says the Son of Man. And so someone coming in the appearance of man. This was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Someone coming to rule and to judge. If you go back and you read Daniel 7, you see that the Son of Man is coming down from heaven, and it uses the same terminology, coming with the clouds of heaven. That's not with earthly clouds. That's not just like water vapor that's trapped in the atmosphere. It's making a reference of coming in the glory of God, the Shekinah glory that only God puts out. He says, coming to judge with righteousness, but he blends Daniel 7 with Psalms 110 verse 1, seated at the right-hand side of God, seated at the right-hand side of power. And so both references are in this context of I am the Messiah and I am being judged by you, but I'm coming one day to judge everything. The judge of heaven entering in and being judged. Jesus, the judge of the universe, entered in and let himself be judged by us. Let us to make like statements and value judgments about is he good enough or is he not good enough? Does he meet the mark? Is he trustworthy? Can we believe him? Letting him go right before into the middle of this. And right after he made this statement, like, did you notice like how they felt? Like, look, how, how do you think they felt? Like, did they feel happy? Uh, did they feel like, oh, that's not quite right? He tore his clothes and they instantly started hitting him and spitting on him, putting something over his head and saying, tell us who hit you. It angered them because they knew what he was saying. He's like, you might be judging me now, but one day I will judge everything. Like, this is still happening. Jesus is still allowing us to judge him with the hope that we would see who he is and we would fall into repentance and we would see that he wants to reconnect us with God and we would see his heart for us is not to bring condemnation. Like when my life seems to be harder than it should, I judge Jesus. I say things like, how could you? Or when I feel like my work doesn't get recognition or the outcome isn't going the way I think it deserves, like I judge Jesus. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm working hard. Or when I think things are falling apart because of my doing or my not doing, I judge Jesus with saying things like, where are you? Do you even care? See, we're so prone to still just judge Jesus when it doesn't add up the way we want it to add up, we look at the Son of God and we say, you must not be doing your job. Jesus, the judge of the universe, entered in and allowed us to judge him. Second, the strength of Peter failed. And so Jesus already knew this would happen. He already told him what the outcome would be. And he already told him, after you fail, remember, I will meet you in Galilee. Look at verse 66. It says, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and she said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. 
verse 68, but he denied it, saying, I neither know him nor understand what you mean. And he went out to the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And then the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystander, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders said again to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. And he began to invoke curses upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of who you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Peter was bold. Like this, this was Peter. This is the first one who called Jesus the Christ in Mark 8. Peter, he was the first one who promised to never betray Jesus, even die. Peter, he's the closest one to Jesus in this moment. And it will be Peter who brings the gospel at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Like where would the church be without Peter? Like this is Peter. If there was someone who was bold and courageous, someone that you could know would stand up in the moment and just say, that's charge, let's do this, let's come together, whether good or bad at times like you knew Peter would fill the vacuum of silence this was Peter and three times he's asked are you with Jesus he says no no are you with Jesus I'm not with Jesus surely you're with Jesus for your galley I'm not with Jesus and then he was reminded that his strength that might have been stronger than all of the other disciples, he was the only one that we read right here that was there, had a limitation, and it failed in the moment when our strengths failed. Jesus meets us there. You know, before Peter declared that he would never fall away, uh, that he would never run, that he would die with Jesus in Mark 14, Jesus told him that after they all ran away, that he would meet them back in Galilee. Galilee was the very first place Jesus called them, the very first place they met. And he says, right when you fail, I'm ready to meet you. Jesus judged. Our strengths failed. The decision about Jesus, it's ours. Look at what happens in chapter 15, verse 1. What we see is like you have to make a decision about Jesus. In, in Mark 15, verse 1, it says, As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he asked her, and he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answers so that Pilate was amazed. Now, if you know, if we look at other gospel accounts, like in Matthew 27, Pilate didn't want to take this case. He didn't want to listen to it. He didn't want to make a decision. He didn't want to put anything on paper. Matter of fact, in Matthew 27, his wife like, had this dream that was so tormenting that she sends him a note that says, have nothing to do with that man. 
And then if you look in Luke 23, the same account, what you find is as Pilate's questioning him, all of a sudden he finds out, oh, wait a minute, you're from Galilee. That's not my jurisdiction. I'll just send you on away and you can go talk to Herod. And so he sends him and Herod's all excited to see, tries to get Jesus to do these miracles because he's heard all these stories. Herod just kind of beats him up and then sends him back. And so this decision is a decision he doesn't want to make, but it keeps coming back to him. It keeps getting in front of him. He has to make the decision. So here he actually makes one more attempt not to make the decision in verse 6. It says, Now as the feast, he was used to release for one of them a prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, he had committed murder. In an insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And it's a moment where he's like, maybe I can get out of this by giving them an obvious choice. We can give you the murderer Barabbas or we can give you Jesus who healed people and fed people and protected the marginalized. Murderer Barabbas, Jesus. And so right here it says, and he came to them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate Wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. The decision about Jesus has to be made by you. You know, we have to decide, what am I going to do with Jesus? Who do I think Jesus is? Jump back to verse 2, because we see it. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews, and he answered him, you have said so. Now, I, I don't think that's a very good translation. It comes from two words, just su legex, you say. And so you could translate it as like, yeah, that's what you're saying. Or you could translate it as you say it. You make the decision. You make the call. You can't just have other people make the decision for you. You can't just send me away and say, what do you think about this? You can't look at the crowd and say, you decide. You have to make the decision of who is Jesus. You have to make the call. I mean, he had already said I know they brought you here out of envy, but it says you have to decide, Pilate. You have to decide, is Jesus just a good dude who taught us to be good boys and girls? Or is Jesus crazy? Or or, or is Jesus just a liar who thought it'd be a lot of fun to get caught up in this and to get himself killed? Like, you can call Jesus crazy, but you have to ignore all the astounding balance of his life and his teaching that changed the world. You can call him a liar or a fool for dying for a lie, but you can't just call him a good moral teacher or a prophet because we saw right here why they killed him. Are you the Christ? Yes. I'm the son of man who's going to judge the world. And they tore their clothes and they said blasphemy. And so the whole thing was trying to decide this. Are you saying that you are God incarnate who's going to judge the world? And he said, yes. And so it brings us to a place that you have to make a decision about Jesus. Who do you say Jesus is? 
Jesus, the judge of the world, stepping in to be judged by us. Our strengths failed. The decision, it's ours. No one else can make it. And next we see Jesus, shamed. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, we start to see what followed after the sentence of death. It says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, the king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his clothes and they led him out to crucify. Jesus was mocked and ridiculed. He stepped into that so that we would judge him, so that we could decide who he is so that he could stand in our place, the other sons of God. You know, if we want to look at really specifically what happened in verses 16 through 15, I mean, really specifically what happened was the Son of God took place of the other Son of God. You see, like the word Barabbas, the name Barabbas, it has a really specific meaning where it says sons of the father. And so the son of the God, Jesus, who looked at God all the time and said he's the father, he stepped into the place of the other son of the father and took his penalty upon him. And then we get to verse 21. It says, and they compelled a pass by or Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And when they crucified, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourselves and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And so if you look in verse 31, you see the chief priests and the scribes mocking him. And then you look down in the end of verse 32, and those who were being crucified also reviled him. The word reviled, it means disgrace or insult, to mock or curse, to cast blame or shame. And so everyone in the picture, those with power and those without power, are looking at Jesus, looking at where he is, looking at where he's standing, looking at where he found himself, and they're mocking him. Jesus entered into the place of shame to save us. And that's not hypothetical. In verse 31, look what it says. It says, he saved others. He cannot save himself. 
See, if we turn that around, if he saved himself, he wouldn't be saving others. He chose to enter in to save others. And that was true. To save others, he had to be. He had to enter in. Jesus judged. Our strengths failed. The decision, ours. Jesus shamed. And now, the death of God done. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Suddenly darkness enters back in. This is a moment where all the Gospels, all four, they really make this picture of light and dark. They really want to show that he was betrayed in the darkness of night, that he was tried in the darkness of night. And then when he died, darkness descended. The supernatural darkness was blocking out the sun as the sun of light was being lost in the dark of humanity. Verse 34. And in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the time of Jesus' deepest pain, he cries out to God. And notice that he cries out in Aramaic. That would have been his heart language. In the moment of the deepest moment, trying to describe what he needs, he cries out to God in his heart language, not in a language that maybe everyone understood, but the language that he understood the most, and he heard nothing. You know, it's worth noting, and I'm not 100%. I, I, I tried to really look at this. I think this is the only time that Jesus actually refers to God as my God. Every other time he refers to him as my Father. And so in the place of our shame, in the place of utter darkness, he doesn't look up and find a Father. He looks up and all he can cry is to a holy God and he receives nothing. Jesus misunderstood and left on the outside so that you could have a way in. You know, at first, like Jesus being misunderstood and left on the outside, in verses 35 through 38, look at this. It says, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. As he said, Eloi, Eloi, it sounded like Elijah. Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And so he was misunderstood as he cried out. Have you ever felt alone and misunderstood? Have you ever like gone to your closest relationships and like as you're trying to describe what's going on and how you feel, it just feels like a miss, like your family doesn't understand, you feel like your friends don't understand, maybe your pastor doesn't understand, like you just feel alone in the darkness, you don't understand. Jesus crying out for the help from God, everyone just didn't understand. Second, he made a way in, and it was made for us. Verse 37, And Jesus uttered in a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. The, the curtain that it's talking about is not a flimsy curtain that you would get at Ikea. 
this, this curtain would have been like a foot thick of, of solid wool, and it would have separated um, everything from the holies of holies. And just once a year, the high priest would have gone in, but the high priest would have gone in to make sacrifices for the people after going through a litany of sacrifices for himself, after going through ceremonial bathing, after putting on the purest of cotton clothes, after having tons of sacrifices done before him, to go before God to make a sacrifice for all the people and hoping to survive himself. But look, it says that the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. Meaning the salvation that brings us into the presence of God started from the top of heaven to come to the bottom of humanity. The curtain was a separation that made a barrier between us and God, and it was torn top down. God started the transaction from up in heaven and brought it down to us. There are now no more sacrifices to be made. Listen to that. There are now no more sacrifices to be made. In the moment of your failure, you don't have to make it up to God or clean it up before you turn to him because Jesus made the only sacrifice that could reconnect you. And like we pictured God wrong. Like even though he gave us a story like Luke 15, that God is like the father waiting for the prodigal come back. Even though we see what happens, that the prodigal after years of living out in sin can't even clean himself up because he's been sleeping with pigs. On his way home, he works out this I'm sorry speech. But as soon as he crests the hill, before he can get the I'm sorry speech out, the father runs to him, embraces him, starts to clothe him and put rings on his finger, starts plans for the huge celebration because his son was dead but his son is back even though that's the picture and we don't even understand that because we would try to put jabs in there we would want to hear that i'm sorry are you really sorry we'd want to put you on probation are you going to do it again even though we see that in our moment of sin do you feel like god is happy to see you when you turn back to him when you've blown it again and you bring the same problem week in after week out, like how do you picture God? Do you feel like he is happy to see you? Or do you feel like you have to make some sort of sacrifices? You've got to throw a week together to really get your life together to prove it to him as a way to atone your life back to God with just for a moment. Is that not a really cheap atonement? So these are the words that we have. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in help in our time of need. Jesus entered in. But who do you say Jesus is? See, every week when we move to communion, we're saying who Jesus is, that Jesus 
is the incarnate Son of God who entered in to live a life that we couldn't live, to die in our place, a death that we deserved. But like we struggle to believe that that sacrifice is final. But when you see that sacrifice is final, it starts to change your heart. And so communion is for Christians who decided that Jesus is God who entered in their place to make a way back to God. And so we remember and we start with the bread and we remember that his body was broken for us so that we might be made whole. Christian, the body of Christ broken for you. And then we move and we go to the grape juice or the wine and we remember that his blood was spilled out for your life. Christian, the blood of Jesus poured out for you. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, in even thinking about this, it is so important that we know that this moment right here in the story, it's still just Friday. And oh, Jesus, Sunday is coming. In the moment of this brokenness, in the moment of being betrayed in darkness and tried in darkness and a supernatural darkness falling upon the land, it's still just Friday. Sunday is coming. And in the resurrection of what we see in Jesus, all things are undone and all things are made new. And the sacrifice of the one made the life of the many. Christian, who do you say Jesus is. Father, Lord, I pray that we'd find clarity, Lord, that we wouldn't look to anything else but to the sacrifice of Jesus because it declares the glory of God, of what that is worth, and it declares the worth of us, Lord, that you entered in. Lord, I pray that that would change us more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.